Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today, we have an interview with writer and director Eric Redd. Among the movies Eric Redd has written or directed are The Hitcher, Near Dark, Cohen and Tate, 100 Feet, and Body Parts. Body Parts will be shown Saturday, October 1st, 2016 at 2 p.m at the Downtown Public Library in the main auditorium on 615 Church Street at 2 p.m. More later, on to the interview. Body Parts is based on a novel choice cuts by Pierre Ballot and Thomas Narsa Jack. Um, what was your attraction to making this into a movie? Well, I thought that the story had the opportunity to do a combination of a psychological horror film combined with a really gory, bloody action horror movie. And I'd, I'd found the, um, I'd heard about the book, I'd heard the logline that basically involved, um, you know, a, a, a killer is executed and um, he's guillotined in the book. And his body parts are donated to uh, an operation where various people are, are given limb transplants and one by one they die. And I thought that was uh, that sounded like a really interesting mystery. So I, I, I tracked down the book. Th these two writers also wrote, or they were great thriller writers, and they wrote the, wrote the books that uh, Diabolique and Vertigo were based on. And both Bolio and Narcajack were very good with uh, sort of visceral horror with a with a great twist. So I, I I went about trying to get the rights to the book, uh, which which took a lot of doing, because the the, the book itself had actually been in development in Hollywood for about 25 years. I think even Alfred Hitchcock had looked at, at making it at one point. You know, and, and in reading the book, I thought to adapt it effectively into a movie required a lot of work. You know, sometimes books require very little adaptation to turn into a good film. This one, I, I felt a lot of things worked better in a novel than they would in, in a movie. Uh, like, for example, in the in the book, as I recall, the main character was a detective who was investigating these deaths of these transplant recipients and ultimately found that the executed killer had made a deal with the doctor to have his uh, head transplanted onto another body and be reassembled. But in the book, that was just the, the twist at the end of the book. So, I mean, in, in adapting a, a screenplay of it, I... I changed the main character to the one of the transplant recipients, uh, the man who got the, the arm, because I thought that the audience in a movie needed a, a point of view character, you know, so that we were the one who lost our arm and then received the arm. And they experienced this kind of the horror of the story firsthand. And also he was the one then who tried to find out, uh, you know, investigated this mystery and found out where the arm came from. And the other, uh, kind of major thing I added in the script was the the whole idea of the killer going to get his body parts back after his head's been transplanted just was a really kind of fun horror movie idea, but the killer needed to be up on his feet and had to kind of go get them himself. Uh, so th those were kind of the, the major, the major alterations I did, but it all came back to this, uh, this, this really wild concept of the original novel choice cuts. We may, we might have, perhaps in retrospect, we should have even titled the movie Choice Cuts. It's a very witty title. 
Just curious, while you were making body parts, did Frankenstein by Mary Shelley have an influence on body parts? Not so much, because the, the, the you know, uh, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein was creating life. You know, uh, the doctor, Dr. Webb in, in, in body parts is kind of perfecting a transplant technique where people who lose limbs can get replacement limbs, except that she's similar perhaps to Dr. Frankenstein in that the end justifies the means for her. And she's pretty, she's fairly ruthless about her tactics. But no, it was, it, it had touches of the, I, I suspect it was a little influenced in some ways by the Hammer Frankenstein movies. And just stylistically, some of the, you know, the old, that kind of gothic horror quality. But I don't think it was, it was particularly influenced by the, by the Shelley novel itself. You were talking about the actress who played the doctor, Lindsay Duncan. I'd like to talk about just well, casting in general of body parts, and particularly her, because I thought she was quite effective in the movie. I agree with you. I, I, I think Lindsay was, uh, Lindsay was tremendous. Uh, amazingly enough, she was the studio's idea. I, 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 neither me nor Frank Mancuso, Jr., the producer, knew about her. And it was, a, it was an unusual movie to make, because we had very uh, few casting requirements for, by the studio. We didn't have to cast stars. Uh, we just kind of had to cast an interesting group of actors. And actually, one of the executives had suggested her. We'd been auditioning a bunch of actresses, and, and I guess she'd done the show uh, Traffic, the drug show and the British show, and we, uh, we screened it. And, you know, she just had this wonderful – she was beautiful – and she had this wonderful, cold, icy quality. And the idea of casting that, that role, the doctor, as, as English, you know, with a sort of Anglophile sense of class was great. And Lindsay was just fabulous. She brought a, for lack of a better word, a, a sort of a sexual level to the way she performed the operations in the film that she actually kind of enjoyed cutting people up. She just had a great authority and commitment. You absolutely believed she was, uh, you know, believed in what she was doing. And uh, she was a great choice. But again, we have to credit the studio to that. Everybody else in the movie, Jeff Fahey came in and interviewed. And he was just, we we kind of knew he he had the right quality. I mean, the, the thing in, um, you know, once I sat down with Jeff and got to know him, I think he has something like 12 brothers and sisters. I mean, he comes from this big kind of Irish family in New York. And in person, he had a great kind of personal warmth. And that was something that I, I brought out or, or tried to bring out during the film. You know, that, that kind of very human aspect that he brought besides the edge. Pretty much everybody, it was, a, it was an ensemble cast. I do want to ask about the car chase. It's very unusual, intense car chase in that movie. And did you storyboard the chase scene in body parts? And could you discuss filming that scene? Yes, uh, it was storyboarded completely because of the the different camera setups that were going to be needed. All had to be planned in advance, and the type of um, stunt work we were going to do, and and how we were going to actually stage this with you know. I mean, of course, at no point were two people ever handcuffed together. You know, we sometimes had two stuntmen with a kind of a, a false set of handcuffs that would easily rip apart. 
I, I had about two and a half nights to film it. I shot it sequentially. And, you know, we had cameras in the back seats of the cars. We shot it off other angles, off of insert cars, forward and back. Um, we had cameras inside the vehicles. And basically, I just tried to put the camera just about every single place I could conceive putting it for that sequence. So we'd have a, a lot of room to cut around. Now, we filmed it on a, uh, a brutally cold night, a series of nights in, uh, in Toronto. Uh, on Lakeshore Drive. So the the temperature, you know, was something like 50 degrees below zero with the wind chill factor. So it was physically kind of demanding to film. We had an excellent stunt team, an excellent stunt coordinator. Other than being laborious, it, it was a fairly smooth sequence to film. I was watching on your YouTube channel, you had two unrated deleted scenes from Body Parts. And I was curious, did you have trouble getting an R rated from the MPAA, Motion Picture Association of America? No. Uh, we, got an R, we got an R rating with every single cut, including the cut with those gory scenes in it. The film hit some political snags before it got released. Because when I filmed it, Frank Mancuso Jr. was the son of the chairman of the board, Frank Mancuso Sr. at Paramount. And he was ousted, uh, Frank Sr., uh, when we were in post on the film. It had kind of a, a, a negative effect on, on the studio's support for the picture. And for whatever reason, one group of executives really objected to that severed arm scene, which is a little funny in retrospect because, you know, this, that was like, 19, like 1990, 1991. And, of course, now it, it, it looks tame by comparison. But... Originally, in my first preview of the film, you know, after the car crash and the stunt where he, he goes flying over the top of the car, there was a big pullback shot, which is, the, you know, the, the footage can be seen on my channel on YouTube, that revealed his, him seeing his severed arm on the freeway and then reaching for it and a truck running over the arm so we know why he didn't just have his own arm put back on. And it was a huge hit with the audiences. The audiences screamed and applauded. It was just a... a, a but... For whatever reason, um, several of the executives at Paramount just objected to the scene because it was too gory or who knows. So being a young director at the time, I, I proposed them a very reasonable compromise. I said, listen, preview the movie two ways. Preview it what, one way, my way with the arm scene in, and then preview it with the scene cut. And, you know, at the time you used a company called Joe Farrell, who they said they gave cards to the audience and they did scores. And let's see, and I basically said, let's see which version scores higher. So they agreed to do that. And my version scored about 10 points higher, which was significant. And the executive said that after that, even though I kind of won my point, uh, they said, well, you know, if we'd had your audience and we screened our version, our version would have screened 10 points higher. So it was a case of the, you know, some executives wanting to have their way. I, I mean, I think in the, in the big picture, I prefer the movie with the arm shot in, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't significantly impact the movie uh, one way or the other losing that. Okay, uh, you refer to the truck running over the arm, but I've noticed in, uh, you refer to the 18-wheelers of semi-trucks as dragons, and um, in your novel White Knuckle, in movies you've written and directed, a big truck or semi-truck uh, plays an important part. What's your fascination with 18-wheelers? I just think, I mean, I, I, I love um, road thrillers. 
I love the, the whole genre of the American highway. And there's something just very, very primal and dramatic and scary about an 18-wheeler. Uh, when I was a kid, the movie Duel, the Spielberg-Matheson film, had a, had a huge effect on me. I've used trucks in different books and films uh, just because they're, you know, they're, they're kind of a terrific, dramatic device. The, the novel White Knuckle was one that was it actually involved a great deal of research into the life of the interstate trucker and, and all of that. But it's very American. You can't drive on the highways without seeing a million trucks. Also in doing research, I was just wondering, is it true Paramount pulled ads for body parts in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, after police found dismembered bodies in Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment? Yeah, I mean, our, our unfortunately, our timing with that movie couldn't have been worse. And there was, of course, no way to anticipate that, you know, because the release date was set a, a year in advance. But, yeah, about two weeks before the movie was about to be released, Jeffrey Dahmer was captured, which shouldn't have been in and of itself, you know, significant. The movie has nothing to do with, uh, it's not a movie about a serial killer. It's not a movie about Jeffrey Dahmer. But some marketing idiot at Paramount, um, I suppose, trying to be sensitive, pulled the ads in Milwaukee. And the minute they did that, it became news. It wasn't news before that. But once they did that, um, I remember waking up and looking at the L.A. Times and the headline was Paramount pulls body parts ads in Milwaukee. So there, it created a, a very unfair and utterly uh, inaccurate association between the movie and the uh, – and, you know, the serial killer. And I think it, it definitely impacted how the movie did at the box office. In movies you've written or directed, The Hitcher, Near Dark, Blue Steel, Cohen and Tate, and The Last Outlaw, you seem to be interested in, like, cat and mouse stories. What's your interest in this type of story? I've always liked stories that have a very strong good guy and bad guy and have a... Um, a sense of psychological confrontation as well, not just kind of a, a shoot 'em up chase, but one in which there's a psychological connection, not necessarily empathy, but there's a psychological level to the bad guy that the good guy's hunting or is being terrorized from. Um, I think it gives a movie gravitas, and that when there's a human theme underneath it, there's some dramatic substance, it makes the, the story a lot more exciting. And I, I've always been drawn to kind of contained stories with an economy of elements and, and, and sort of limited moving parts. Because I think if you lose things like subplots in movies and you focus the whole 90 minutes or two hours on really this confrontation in a, in a kind of a limited setting, with a limited amount of characters, you just spend a lot more time, the audience, with these, this group of characters, and it becomes very exciting. Uh, the, a movie I did, 100 Feet, was about a, a woman in a house under house arrest for killing her husband, being haunted by his ghost. And that film was almost a, there were a few characters in it, but it was almost a one-woman show with Famke Jansen. And, I, you know, when you, when you do one of these kind of stories, you make a deal with the audience right at the beginning. You basically say, okay, we're going to basically stay in this one place with, you know, this one, two or three characters, and we're going to hold your interest. So the, um, I, th I think uh, when you do it right, it, it's very, very 
involving and, and very rewarding for the audience. But the challenge in these is you have to ha you have to be able to keep it exciting and interesting. I've always gravitated to those type of stories. Body Parts is actually one of the few kind of more sprawling uh, projects I've done that had a lot of locations and characters. You said the Hitcher, which you wrote the script to, was based on Riders of the Storm, the song by the Doors. But I also read that you picked up a hitchhiker once, and that, too, was part of the inspiration to the Hitcher. Is there any truth to this, and could you discuss that incident? <laughs> no, there's no truth. I have no idea how that story got out there. I think it's just one of those kind of urban legends. No, it was... Uh, the 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 film was inspired by that that song Riders in the Storm and I thought that 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 image of you know a hitchhiker standing in a rain in the rain and a, somebody who picks him up was a great starting point you know for a movie so and I left New York City and went to Texas and on the drive to Texas the whole story because I had a lot of time in my hands you know kind of evolved but uh, yeah no it's it's based on the it's based on the door song. For me, The Hitcher is like watching a nightmare, and when you were writing The Hitcher, is this what you were trying to accomplish, a living nightmare? What I did with that is I, that script was I wrote the first 10 pages, the setup with the kid picking up the hitchhiker and then toss, finally tossing him out of the car. And what I tried to do was stay with, in the writing with that situation, that very focused confrontation, and with every scene come up with something I, I didn't expect would happen next and I didn't think the audience would expect to happen next. As far as it being a nightmare, I actually tried to keep it fairly realistic, you know, in, in, in terms of setting it in modern Texas with the Texas police force. And, you know, I, I think that the end result had the quality of a nightmare and that he was somebody who you couldn't escape from. You know, the idea that you're that somebody's being pursued by somebody who is who is inescapable and in fact is often off screen for a lot of the movie. But his hand is always, you know, affecting events. So I think that the nightmarishness kind of came out of the situation. OK, uh, you've collaborated with Catherine Bigelow on Near Dark, Blue Steel and Undertow. Could you discuss how your collaboration got started and how you two would work together? Uh, well, this is going back many years, but we, uh, we, we met socially and, um, kind of hit it off and decided to write a couple scripts together. And I guess over, I mean, all three of those scripts were written, I, I think within a year and, um, we were just very disciplined. You know, we'd get together, um, I think we'd get together five days a week and, you know, we'd each write five pages, uh, we'd, we'd sit together and we'd each write five pages. So we'd do 10 pages a day and. Um, one of us would be at the typewriter and the other would be tossing back ideas and we would do it in shifts. And in that manner, like those three scripts got uh, got written and uh, had a lot of laughs. It was a very fun process. When you were writing Cohen and Tate, was The Ransom of Red Chief by O. Henry an influence at all? No. Uh, you know, I never heard of that story until after it had been, uh, the movie had been released and a few people mentioned it in reviews. So the, it, it, the uh, association between the two was coincidental. I watched your short movie, Gunman Blues, which had a similar theme to Cohen a Tate of an aging hitman going against a younger psychotic hitman. Did you refer back to Gunman Blues when you started to write Cohen and Tate? No, I mean, if Conan Tate was based on anything, it was based on a, a, 
and, and I'm surprised that nobody ever brings it up. It was based on a film that came out a few years before that I was a big admirer of, but I felt in many ways could have been done better. It was a film by Stephen Frears called The Hit. Oh, yeah. And it involved, uh, I think it was, uh, I haven't seen it for years, but it, it involved a seasoned pro hitman, a, psych, a psychotic hitman, and in, in the case of that movie, an older gangster. But there were elements in it I loved. I loved when, uh, in that film, the, the older hitman started to work the two guys. But as I recalled watching the movie, it was a very small part of the film. And I said, you know, it would be really fun to kind of take that idea and make a whole movie out of it. And then, but instead of having it, uh, you know, be like somebody who's seasoned and smart, have it be a, a kid, you know, somebody who's got to think, who's got to really think in his feet. So the hit was definitely an influence on Conan Tate. But uh, although I think they're 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 very different, but Gunman's Blues, not so much, uh, except for you know that there was a lot of um, present tense, moment by moment tension with the with the two characters, with the three characters in that case. Uh, I just wanted to tell you that on the audio commentary that you said that it got a few hundred theaters, the release of Cohen and Tate in a. Uh, the Midwest, but it did come to Nashville for a week because I did see it for the one week it was here. So it did play. No, that's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad somebody actually saw it in the theater when it came out. That's great. I'm I'm very happy you had a chance. (laughs) (laughs) You cited all the audio commentary of Cohen and Tate that Cohen and Tate and 100 Feet were your personal favorite movies, and I was just wondering why. I think my personal favorite movie of all of them is 100 Feet, uh, just because what I, I love about that movie was the fact that it was it was completely an exercise in suspense and tension and terror. There was only one kill in the whole movie. I mean, that, that was a that was a film that was all about like playing with audiences' expectations. And I mean, I mean, I thought of probably that. So in, in some ways, that film is my my personal favorite. And it's also a throwback to the movies I grew up with in the 70s. You know, like Rosemary's Baby and Wait Until Dark. I think Rosemary's Baby was the 60s, actually. I think that Cohen and Tate and 100 Feet are the most substantial films dramatically, you know, where the, the theme was really fully, you know, explored. Body Parts, I was having a lot of fun with. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, 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 it genuflects a little bit to the mystery is where does evil lie in the, is it in the arm or is it in the, this guy's reaction to the accident and getting his, this new arm? I mean, but we don't, we don't take it all that seriously. It's really a fun movie that I had a tremendous amount of fun making. And I think it's very, it's a fun movie for the audience. But, but Cohen and Tate and 100 Feet were films where, you know, the, the character dynamics and the characters were explored very, very carefully, and uh, and I think are probably more consistent. So yeah, I suppose in that level, they're they're, they're probably the two best I've done. You were mentioning thrillers from for a hundred feet, movies from the seventies, and I was just wondering, was the Sentinel one of them? Because you thank Jeffrey Convince at the end of the film in a hundred feet. It's interesting, uh, the sort of six degrees of separation with Jeff Convince. Uh, Jeff's a friend of mine. And um, I, we actually met in 100 Feet, but, you know, he'd written in the 70s um, this marvelous novel, The Sentinel. And it was the kind of success that's unheard of today for books. I mean, I think it sold something like 2 million copies in paperback. I remember getting the paperback when I was a kid and I always loved it. 
it was no direct influence on 100 Feet, but in the intervening years, Jeff had become an entertainment attorney after, after he was a novelist. And he was the producer's production attorney on 100 Feet. So, in fact, he was very involved with that movie, not creatively, but in terms of the, you know, setting up the deals and negotiating the contracts. And, you know, he, he, he's still a friend. That's my connection with Jeff. Okay. Uh, in 100 Feet, the character Marnie tries to exercise the paranormal beings from her brownstone. Did you uh, do research into the paranormal, or was this just writer's imagination? I did a little bit of research. There wasn't that much to research, you know, in terms of I think the only research that uh, I did on that was finding out what one would do to if you had a ghost and, and you believed in ghosts, which I don't, you know, but what, what you would do to, to exercise them. And there's a small scene in the film where, where Marnie does, does some research and she burns some herbs and she repeats the type of uh, you're supposed to ask the ghost to leave. Based on my research, if you're trying to, to get a bad spirit out of a house, you, you sort of need to address it politely and request that it leave you alone. So there is that moment, which doesn't work and doesn't work out too well for her. Other than that, the ghost, the ghost stuff was, you know, I, I took dramatic license. A Hundred Feet takes place in New York, but was filmed in Budapest, Hungary. And what's it like to work with film crews in Budapest? Well, it was actually filmed both in New York and in Budapest. Uh, the, all of the exteriors of the Brownstone and, um, you know, the scenes on the Brooklyn Queens Expressway at the beginning of the movie, those I shot. I had a week of shooting in, in Brooklyn Heights and Fort Greene. The interior of the house, this, which was a, a full set, and the backyard of, of the set that burns and, and the basement were all built on a stage in, in, in Budapest. Uh, I've done two films in the Eastern Bloc. I did uh, that film in Budapest and I did Undertow in uh, Vilnius, Lithuania. And one of the reasons that it's a great place to go and film is their production design and their set construction uh, personnel are probably the best in the world. The amount of care and craftsmanship and detail that they use when they're building sets, uh, I, I, don't, I think it's better than the U.S. And, and probably better than anywhere else I've ever filmed. The crews are marvelous. They really work hard. They really care. So I had a, a wonderful experience with the crew over there and uh, especially good with the production designer, Martin Ach, in that film, uh, who, you know, he came with to New York and we looked at brownstones. And I mean, he... he was so meticulous about like measuring every single inch and diagramming and detailing every single detail of the way one of these brownstones is constructed. Uh, we, we took a few liberties in the movie with the construction, but if you were actually on that set in Budapest, you could have moved in. I mean, the walls weren't paper, the walls were brick. And uh, he, he built a, a, a fantastic set that could completely fly apart. You could pull the walls and the ceiling and the camera could go everywhere. And um, so it was just a, a, I'd go back to Hungary in a minute. Okay, just two more quick questions. Um, besides writing and directing movies, you've also write novels, White Knuckle, It Waits Below, The Guns of Santa Sangri. Um, what artistic satisfaction does a writing a book give you that making a movie does not? You don't need anybody, for one thing. Um, you know, it's uh, when you're. I love writing books because it's a much fuller 
type of storytelling than writing a script is. And you have a great many more storytelling tools at your disposal in a novel. I mean, from voices to point of views to different prose styles to and, – and the fact that you have no limitations. You're not limited by budget. You're not limited by having to think about how you're going to achieve this physically filming it. So in that sense, it's a, you know, it, 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 it's a lot of fun. The other thing that, that I, I like about books, when you're making a movie, you're kind of giving people the pictures. You know, you, you're, you're shooting the shots and you're staging it and getting the performances, but everybody kind of sees the same movie. But, you know, when you write a book or when you read a book, you bring your own pictures to it. So, you know, I mean, I, I think in that sense, the a reader interfaces with a novel in a more um, impactful way than most viewers engage in a, it, with a movie because they have to bring something of themselves to it. So I, I enjoy that part about uh, writing books. You know, there's really nothing between the reader and me but the prose. Okay, and the final question is what are you working on right now? Is it a book, movie? I'm working on several novels, uh, including a sequel to The Guns of Santa Sangre, uh, which was the, a werewolf western novel I wrote that's going to be part of a trilogy uh, that involves these kind of adventures of these three gunfighters in old Mexico um, dealing with these these werewolves. And it's a fairly becomes a fairly elaborate mythology, but it'll be a three part uh, book that'll ultimately all finally be uh, also printed in one one omnibus. I would like to thank Eric Red for granting us the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Nashville Public Library on Saturday, October 1st, 2016 at 2 p.m. to see Body Parts. Remember, it's free. And today's music is by Luke Dicker from Body Parts. <laughs>